Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We're feminine chaos, but we are not alone. <laughs> no, there's more chaos in the room with us right now. Mm-hmm. Lee Stein, say hello. Hello, thanks for having me back. Oh, we're so thrilled to have you. Yes, you can't quit us. You can't quit no. the chaos. Um, Lee, uh, remind everyone who you are. I am the author of the satirical novel Self Care, and I'm also a cultural critic like you two ladies. That's right. So um, we have, you know, uh, in honor of today's main topic, um, we have three ladies here in the room, one to eat, one to pray, and one to love. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like an, an elaborate um, Gilbertian version of Fuck, Mary Kill. But before we eat, pray, and love, um, we're going to rant, rant, and rant. Phoebe, do you want to, you're mad about something. I am mad. <laughs> I'm mad online. I'm mad and I'm online. You know, it happens to us all. So I was reading the Roxanne Gay work friend pride themed column and I'm reading a do to do and it's like most of it seems sort of like fine. Okay, whatever. This seems fine. This seems whatever. Okay. But then there was this, there were two letters that just are so far off and I cannot even like, like her answers are just so far off. So the first is Okay, somebody writes in, somebody named Anonymous, um, I'm sure that's their legal name, it <laughs> writes, as a healthcare worker, how do you deal with homophobia and transphobia from a patient? And this person is upset because they write, uh, my, and, okay, my employer is not willing to let the income from this patient go, so the solution is for the patient to come in on my off days. I find this less than ideal. Okay, and Roxanne Gay says that... Um, this should not be the case and that um okay and right uh, she writes i suppose it's something that the patient visits the office on your off days but it would be better if your employers had principles and refused to do business with a bigot and i'm just like losing it because like anybody who was not a nice person should be denied medical care now that's like what because there's such a spectrum of what this can be and like is this somebody coming in and like haranguing staff to the point that they can't work is this somebody who's just like i do not believe in same-sex marriage but i am bleeding out from my severed limb <laughs> you know like, I mean, I just, i'm just wondering what oh. so we don't know phoebe we don't have specifics of what the comments were mm. We also don't know what kind of medical office this is. Exactly, exactly. Like, is this being denied? Is this person being denied, like, cosmetic injectables? Or are they being denied, like, intravenous antibiotics that they need? You know what I mean? Like, it's unclear. And because this is coming from the States, which you folks down down in the States deal with American healthcare, where, where it is possible that this is about money, although it is also possible in Canada and other ways it could be about money, um this thing about the business and the money, like that doesn't to me say that it's not like health, health care. Um, anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was mm-hmm. one item one. And I just like, I both want to know more details and just want to rant. You know, can we actually, I mean, just really briefly, that reminds me of this. There was this motion, I, not motion. It wasn't like a law or a legal thing, but um, this policy being discussed and it might've been in the UK rather than the U S but where people who, um, you know, who were, bigoted or deemed bigoted were going to be denied medical care. The idea was that, you know, medical professionals shouldn't have to have, um, you know, unpleasant ideologies inflicted on them by patients. And all I could think was like, what bad news this is for people who have um, mental 
health issues or like actual brain injuries, things like dementia, things like, yes, you know, absolutely, extremely that there's yes. this whole host of, of things that can happen to you that, you know, even if you're not inherently like a deeply bigoted person that can basically make you into a very unpleasant person to be around. And, um, and these are things that require like urgent medical care. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think that's, that's really central to this because I think there are all sorts of people who have in the privacy of their own minds or their own households, all sorts of offensive thoughts that they might share privately. They're probably not going to share them at the doctor's office because they have some kind of sense and they have some sort of their, their, their brains are functioning in a way that allows them to control what they say where, you know, whereas somebody whose brain is not doing so great at that particular juncture is far more likely to be lashing out, perhaps, you know, <laughs> just in some kind of incoherent way that doesn't in any way reflect their like true views. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense in a healthcare setting. And it does seem like a little bit um, tricky, especially I'm thinking, yeah, like dementia, like that, what, what do you just say? Like, forget nursing homes, anybody says one thing, they're just like out on the street. I mean, it doesn't seem, um, yeah, anyway. It's also ironic that that the left, which which one of our you know key signature uh, policies we would like is universal health care, and the signature policy move of Obama's first term was uh, making it illegal to discriminate against people with preexisting conditions when offering them health care. Like health care for all is like you know really important to the left. So it, it's very funny to me that anyone on the left would say like, but not universal health care for these people. I say your pre-existing condition is that you're an asshole. Yeah, and so. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there are signs up in like Toronto in healthcare settings, like in a doctor's office that say, you know, like bullying, bigoted, whatever stuff is not tolerated here. But like, that's more just kind of if you're somebody who's capable of reading the sign and actually responding to it, it applies to you. If you're not, I do not get the sense that they're like, okay, you know, your politics are a notch to the right of what I would prefer. So, you know, no OHIP for you. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that that was one of the letters. The other is one where somebody has told work that she slash they want she slash they pronouns, but is upset that people are using she and not using they or both. Um, so... Roxanne Gay here seems to be saying that you should, in an ideal world, be able to expect people... Okay, this is the quote from the answer that I find very frustrating. In an ideal world, people would be mindful of using both sets of pronouns regularly. Okay, what? No, no. In an ideal world, people at work would use the pronouns you have asked for. In an ideal world, there's no, like, figuring out what somebody's wearing that day and what that might mean that they want or what they no 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 in an ideal world people respect what you've asked them to do they're not like this just blows my mind and um there was a recent blocked and reported about like i guess this is the new thing in the sort of hyper hyper progressive spaces wanting people to kind of rotate through your pronouns oh i didn't know that um i learned this like literally yesterday listening to this podcast that this is a thing um no i i just i guess i just find this i feel like no 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 like once at work i was called dr phoebe and i did not like that i still didn't write a letter to an advice column anyway but 
I'm just remembering the time that I called you Dr. Phoebe on this podcast as a joke, but that's not what you're talking about, right? Because you can still write me a strongly worded letter. I'm, no, I'm writing it to Roxanne Gay. Are you kidding? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, my goodness. Um, so that that's my rant done. Rant done. Hashtag, not hashtag. Um, you're just warming up, Phoebe. You're just warming up. I know. I know. So what, but, so what we have actually gathered to talk about is um, indeed... Elizabeth Gilbert, who did what? Uh, Lee, do you remember? You were first to write about it, I believe, of all of us. Well, I think what makes me an interesting figure in this story is I think I was among the first like, literary writers to share a counter-opinion in public. In public is key. Yeah. So Elizabeth Gilbert is famous for her 2006 memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. Then she wrote another New York Times bestseller called Big Magic, like telling writers, but not just writers, telling every everyday people to live a creative life beyond fear. And she's also a novelist. Um, and she was supposed to have a new novel that's a historical novel set in the former Soviet Union from the 1930s to the 1980s called The Snow Forest. It was supposed to be published in February 2024, which I think may have been a mistake on her publisher's end just because they didn't think that February 2024 would mark the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so after Elizabeth Gilbert announced pre-orders for her new novel on Good Morning America and in a video that she posted to all her social media accounts, she received a lot of backlash from the Ukrainian community on social media and also on the website Goodreads where people leave book reviews. And so because of the negative response she received six days after she announced pre-orders, she announced that she has decided to postpone the publication of her own novel. So she's pulling it from publication um, because she heard from her Ukrainian fans that the book would quote, cause quote unquote harm to Ukrainians if this book were published. We should add really, sorry, just really quickly for anybody who's not initiated into the kind of intricacies of these publishing controversies. One of the reasons why it was a big deal that this uh, centered on the Goodreads website is that on that site, you are allowed to rate and review books before they have even been published. So you can do it without reading it. And um, they, they took the Goodreads page down. But before they did, um, Gilbert's novel had, I think, 534 ratings, and they were all one star. So they had completely so how is that? How is that possible? Because Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Ratings. Can I add okay, something? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. So it's not only allowed, cat. But this is actually like a key part of the marketing for a book. So they put they marketing departments are watching in advance of publication to see what early reviewers are saying. And then they're using that language to market the book. So if all readers are saying like, this book is so weird, it reminds me of X, the marketing team at the publisher might be like, oh, that's even a better way to sell it. And so they are mining those comments for like marketing strategies. Wow. Mm. So just a quick question, though, like a technicality. Is it was the response verifiably in any way from the Ukrainian community? Because it seemed from the names on Goodreads, like, yes, I would, my hunch was that, yes, these were Ukrainians, whether they were in Ukraine, whether they were somewhere else, that's neither here nor there. But it did not seem like this was being done on behalf of, but then again, that does often happen online. So I was wondering if we have any knowledge of that. I heard some conspiracy theories that these reviews were all bots. I don't think they're bots. 
And there was a Lit Hub piece published about this whole brouhaha that said initially in the initial draft on Lit Hub, it said something about how the Goodreads reviewers were suspicious. And a lot of Ukrainians, I think, were rightfully offended by that. And they were like, oh, you don't think we know how to read English? Like, so a lot of people were like, I'm a Goodreads reviewer. I reviewed this many books and I'm one of those people. So the real people behind the reviews stood up to defend their one-star reviews. So I don't think they're bots. I think they are people. The thing I can't really determine is how many of these are Ukrainians living in the Ukraine and how many are Ukrainian-Americans? I don't know. Well, the other thing about bots, so I said in my article about it, something about it being like a bot, seeming like a bot campaign. I did not mean literally like bots did it, but I mean, there's a certain tone and people took issue. I mean, we'll talk about all of our articles and all the things people took issue with. But yeah, just this issue of bots to me seems like when you see a whole cascade of one star reviews of something that nobody who's reviewed it has actually read that feels bot-like, even though, as you could see from Goodreads, it did seem that these were people who had done other reviews, right? This was not exclusively... It definitely yeah. seems to me like a coordinated campaign. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, is that even though it's, you know, it feels bot-like because there's clearly such a kind of a group-thinky dynamic going on, there's a sense mm-hmm. that maybe there was a form letter somewhere that people were being encouraged to kind of reproduce. Um, the, people always use basically the same language in their one-star review of a book mm-hmm. like this. Romanticizing and, Russians, right? Wasn't that yes, always the... Yes, that was case? it. That was it. Do we think that this book romanticized... Russians, this book that we've all read, obviously, very closely, that has not yet appeared in any capacity. Based on the premise alone, that seems impossible. Lee, do you want to um, just explain what the premise of the book is? Because you also know this better than either Phoebe or I. Yes. So Elizabeth Gilbert, in her original video saying, I'm so excited about my new book, she talks about how she began writing this book in the deep isolation of the early days of the pandemic when she was totally alone and totally isolated. And she remembered this story that she had read once about this real family who um, in the in 1936, the Likov family, they basically fled um, religious persecution under the Soviet regime. So they were um, kind of a sect of Eastern Orthodox Christians, and they fled to Far East Russia to the Siberian wilderness where they lived for decades without any human contact. So like when their shoes broke down, they made new shoes out of like birch bark. Like it's such extreme um, seclusion and isolation. And then they were discovered in 1978 by geologists who were kind of surveying the area and noticed like a strange shack and what looked to be some kind of farm or garden in the middle of the wilderness. And they were like, huh, what's going on here? And they discovered this family had been living there for decades. And so Elizabeth Gilbert was inspired by this story to write about this this family. I see. So that does not sound particularly like a pro-Putin <laughs> type of thing. No. And that's one part of the backlash that I find it's hard for me to understand. Maybe this is just because I'm so ignorant as an American, but the the criticism that I've seen, um, I quoted some tweets here. I, I said, you know, how does this actually help? And someone said it helps to stop promoting Russian culture and its romanticization. Russian culture was always built on xenophobia and genocide against colonized nations. It's time for Westerners to look into how your actions endorse Russian colonialism by supporting it and giving it space. It's like using this like language that I recognize from even American social justice politics, but I still don't understand how this novel in particular romanticizes 
Russian well, it culture. Doesn't, it doesn't sound like it does. So I tried to give the whole thing, the the cancel her campaign, as much benefit of the doubt as I could. And I tried, and I came up with kind of two ways that it, in a very weird way, adds up. One would be, so I went to Naples as, um, like, we went on, like, the baby moon. So this was not last week because this was for our older daughter. And I've, like, not gone anywhere since, basically. But we went to Naples and Ischia because of um, the Ferrante novels. It sounded interesting, right? So I guess it's not inconceivable that somebody would go to Siberia to have their seaside pizza vacation. Um, what? Are you serious? I'm joking. I'm joking about <laughs> Siberia. No, I'm saying that I think that that it doesn't entirely add up. But I mean, it's like, I think people do go places because they've read about them. I don't think that's impossible. I think Siberia is an unlikely candidate. The other way I think it kind of makes sense, even though like baseline, obviously, I don't think it makes sense. Like all like the three of us, I argued, you know, that it didn't. But is like that it's like blocking a road for as a, you know, as a protest. And her novel in this analogy is the road and there's nothing about the road itself. It's just, you know, this is blocking something and it's making a scene. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's making an impression by blocking something. Wait, but let me say something about your first point, Phoebe, the idea that this would, this would spur tourism. No, I mean, in I, Siberia. Don't think it would. I don't no, think no, it would. but I think you're onto something in that the reaction feels like they're reacting to her publishing eat, pray, love to the sequel where she like eat, prays and loves her way around like, like not even Siberia around Moscow and St. Petersburg, like celebrating Russian culture. If that were the case, the backlash would make a lot more sense to me. But I wonder if it's because she's so well known for Eat, Pray, Love. That's what she's known for. Mm, so that could be actually. And okay. that c- completely changed the tourism in Indonesia, that book. Mm, so maybe that is it. So maybe it is imagined that this is Eat, Pray, Love Your Way Through the More Desolate Parts of the Former Soviet Union. What is there to eat there? I mean, like the permafrost? <laughs> there might be some borscht. You might have to microwave it. Nice, a nice soup made out of lichen. And uh, maybe there's like, I don't know, what kind of animals are in Siberia? Bears? Reindeer. Actually, it's reindeer meat. You, okay, you actually, but that's the only thing you have. So you have to like eat the reindeer and pray with the reindeer and also love the reindeer. Love the reindeer. Yeah. Surely. No, love, love the Russian people for all of their many romantic qualities. Um I don't know. This is just, yeah. I mean, what I guess what I'm getting at is that when I tried to give the campaign itself the benefit of the doubt, the most I could come up with was people are angry for a legitimate reason. That doesn't mean that it's, they've channeled it to something that makes any sense. And that seemed to be another point of contention um, in the response I got where I said something like the Ukrainians are angry for a reason, but, and so he's like, how dare you like phrase with a but? It's like, yeah, but if what they're, specifically complaining about is like a totally separate matter from the Russian invasion, then yeah, but although anyway. But I think this, this controversy, it becomes like a proxy battle in the war. Like it, of course the Ukrainians are demoralized and they've been brutally victimized. Like no one would disagree with that. So then this becomes like a battle that they can win and celebrate. There are people (laughs) who are like, I think people in Europe who are kind of, fed up with like the economic impacts that they feel the war is having. Like there are people like it's easy, I guess, maybe for us seeing a lot of Ukrainian flags and so forth um, on social media and certainly in Toronto in person. 
to feel like everybody's on the side of the Ukrainians, but I don't think that that's true. Well, but by polling results, the majority of Americans support. Of Americans, okay. Yeah, yeah. 65% yeah. support Ukrainians counteroffensive to, to keep their land and their culture. Can I say something really quick about the um, the tone of the backlash to those who were not supportive of Gilbert's decision to cancel? Uh, because this is something that I've been thinking about with respect to like both the conversation about it being originally a bot campaign, not that I think it was, um, but also about the um, kind of widespread support for Ukraine in the States. Um, something that occurred to me as I was um, on like the third day of people calling me um, a very bad word online for having uh, for having written that I thought her her cancellation was kind of cringeworthy. It was that if somebody were trying to kind of manufacture a false flag operation to like contrive a backlash and and turn the sympathies of people against Ukraine, uh, they could not have come up with a better one than the way people were behaving in response to the discourse surrounding Liz Gilbert's self-cancellation. Oh yeah, this was this this was the second time I've been called Trump this year. I was called Trump when I was last on your podcast at the bottom of a pylon about my book talk piece and my ableism, and then I was called Trump this time too. It's just well, you're often. I mean, I often confuse you with with Donald Trump. We I mean, look very similar. How many yeah. documents do you keep in your toilet? <laughs> All of them. Okay. This is actually why we're adding a bathroom so that Lee can um, bring her documents over and store them. Well, that's how Feminine Chaos Baseline keeps all of its records, you know, because after we do a show, we print out the transcript, put it into a box and keep it in the toilet. That's uh, that's how it's done. Um, yeah. So another, so can I like be super contentious and cancel myself before we talk maybe more about the literary aspects? Yeah. So... My sense, and this is where people got mad at me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw that out into the abyss of more allowing listeners to get mad too if they want. Um, my theory, okay, was that the reason that so yes, people like we all got you know people angry at us for being for calling her self cancellation silly, right? However, what I noticed was, and Kat really like highlighted this with examples in her piece. A lot of the kind of people you would expect to be like, oh, that's good. This author knows that she's been problematic and is canceling her book. That's she's doing the right thing. A lot of the sort of usual figures who would say that did not say that. Right. This was not received, you know, as kind of in progressive circles as a wonderful thing. And people did kind of make fun of her. Like a lot of people made fun of her, I think, was my impression. And my theory is that this is because Ukrainians are da, 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 white people for the most part. Um, and not just that, but like they're, what this means specifically is that she did not, in offending Ukrainians inadvertently here, she did not reveal any sort of underlying bigotry in herself that could be like, aha, she hates this this type of person. You know, she, it's not... Because when I was looking at the other... Um, instances that Kat has reported on about, you know, writers self-canceling their novels before they appear, it tends to be that there's some sort of specific, like, Muslims, Black people. Ethnic or racial angle, yeah. Yes, and here it seems like however much people are putting a Ukrainian flag in their bio, however supportive progressives might be of this cause, there's no sense that somebody who kind of makes a misstep to do with this topic 
is a racist and ableist whatever you know what i mean like so i think that may have played out a little bit here but then when i made this point people were saying are you saying ukrainians aren't oppressed hmm. and i was like no i'm not but anyway i don't know if there's any i don't know if this theory makes any sense but i mean i guess it's relevant because it at first seemed like maybe like the tape like the the vibe is shifting to less um less outrage well see phoebe i hate your theory for this reason because it really steps on my optimism which you know <laughs> my my theory was maybe this is the indication of something of a turning point that people have just grown so fatigued by the uh the endless canceling that nobody is going to leap up and applaud somebody who does this anymore um which is clearly what gilbert expected so for you to suggest that it's actually just because the ukrainians are not oppressed enough in the convention ways that we tend to think about it you're just I, I don't know you're really like harsh in my buzz here and I don't appreciate it you might have to cancel me too and then it's done and then I just like have to duck out of the the virtual room of the podcast but I think it's so it's 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 a kind of cultural relevancy that I think it might be hard for us to even understand as Americans. Phoebe, to Phoebe's point it's like it's not playing out in the kind of racial dynamics that we saw play out on social media like in the summer of 2020. Right. But to Ukrainians, the difference between a Ukrainian and a Russian is tremendous. Oh, sure, sure. But it's not fitting into the framework of, of American social justice politic infighting. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that that's interesting, though, just in terms of like, if you try to look at this as kind of, if you try to plug it into this sort of wokeness wars or whatever, it doesn't yes. fit. It doesn't fit right. at all because it's its own, it's, its own topic. You know, it kind of reminds me in certain ways of, um, I think the closest analog I can think of is the anti-police sentiment specifically that you saw in um, in the U.S., like in especially at the height of things in 2020 when everyone was kind of just losing their minds. Uh, one of the hallmarks of the praise for Gilbert, which, you know, was coming primarily from... Um, you know, people who, who either were or claimed to be Ukrainian or who felt like heavily allied with Ukraine was that this was an act of empathy and hence it was good. And it reminded me of how, um, you know, subject matter wise in 2020, there was all of this backlash against any show or, or novel or what have you that portrayed police officers in a positive light at all. It's like they came for law and order. They came for <laughs> Paw Patrol. Um, and it was a sort of a similar thing. It was like, you know, at this moment, like, how dare you portray this loathed out group of people in anything approaching a sympathetic or even humanizing light? And that's the thing that actually reminds me the most of in terms of the kind of the nature of the objections to the book. We can also look to contrast this controversy with American Dirt, which was drawn on more racial lines and I think it's an interesting contrast because of the way the um, response was handled. So in this case, Elizabeth Gilbert, who has a stronger brand than her own publisher, is talking directly to her audience and responding to their concerns and making, I think this was her decision. I don't think it was Riverhead Books' decision because if she, she's so powerful that if Riverhead's like, we got to walk this one back, we're going to cancel this book, Elizabeth Gilbert could have gone, gone and knocked on Simon and Schuster's door and just published it with them. If that's what she wanted to do, she has the more powerful brand. But in the case of American Dirt, um, and the backlash that that 
thriller faced um, for the author. I mean, you guys have talked about this, but for the author not being brown enough to write it or for kind of mishandling the author's note around race around the book. In any case, her publisher, Flatiron, stepped forward and just kind of handled crisis comms, the whole thing. And the author, Janine Cummins, kind of disappeared into obscurity. And you didn't you didn't get Janine Cummins on camera um, tell, uh, speaking directly to her audience about the criticism. Right. Can we talk about the literary aspects of this, like what it means for um, literature? Because this is the, like, I'm the one, I'm the token non-novelist here. Never say never. We're going to get you one of these days. Well, oh, no, I mean, I, I have I have the word documents that that, are, that go nowhere. Um, and that, yeah, it's not it's not like I wouldn't try. But yeah, I don't have the gift for this. But um, I do read novels. And I, you know, like that the world has them. And what I really notice is just the way that like all books you know, get marketed in terms of like, does it fit with a particular cause? Does it fit with an awareness week? And specifically the bookstore um, down the street from me has like, its window is always like, what awareness month is it? Let's do that. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's a way of reducing an overwhelming amount of choices. There's like thousands of books you could read. How do you choose? Exactly. So what I was going to say is that I think as a marketing strategy for existing books, it adds up. And I don't really, you know, while I might not share the exact politics of this particular bookstore, um, you know, I think it makes sense to, you know, sell something to give it some kind of structure and theme and make people feel like there's some kind of points. Like, why are you getting a book? Well, it's such and such awareness month. So, you know, whatever. But what's upsetting to me about this, about this whole Elizabeth Gilbert thing is the way it reduces art to like, get your timing right, you know, because if you don't, like, how could she do How could she put it out during, you know, this, like, particular part of the news cycle? It's like, it, that's just not how fiction works. And maybe I have too romantic of an idea. Maybe I'm romanticizing not Russians, but fiction. But like, yeah, no, people write when they write. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's still a publisher's decision when exactly to release something, I guess. Well, it's also, there's a practical element to this, which is just that, you know, it takes so long to write a book and then so long for a book to come out after you've written it that it is literally impossible. Exactly. That seems really key here. And I mean, this is true of all types of books. And that's why, like, you know, as somebody who writes a different type of thing myself, like, I'm very conscious of that. Like, when I read nonfiction, I often think, wow, this is really speaking to two to three years ago, very precisely, but doesn't entirely make sense now. And there's not much you can do about it. But with fiction, I feel like that should be just be kind of fine. To sell to sell a novel to a publisher, if you're a normal person and not Elizabeth Gilbert, you have to get lucky twice. You have to get lucky around the timing when you sell your book to a publisher. And then you have to be lucky again, like 18 months later when that book comes out. So when self-care was on submission in spring of 2019, I got more than 20 rejections that didn't understand why I was writing a satire of girl boss feminism or the wellness industry. Like, like oh, it, like it wasn't the right time. So I did not get lucky that time. And then when it came out the summer of 2020, I could not have had better timing because it was the fall of the girl boss and like the week that my novel came out. So I got lucky the second time. Elizabeth Gilbert might have gotten lucky the first time, but not the second time. I mean, it's like, it's so hard to have the stars align twice. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's like, I, I guess what I keep thinking about is how there's like, on the one hand, there's the, um, in a positive sense, you know, a book is, you know, can benefit from whatever, you know, good timing, but then there is this whole sort of undercurrent of, but if you get your timing wrong, not only might your book not see the light of day, but people could be furious with you because you didn't read the room. And this idea of reading the room as a prerequisite for, I don't know, that just, oh, it seems like how, what, what's that going to mean for fiction? No, I mean, it's like, it's the inverse of trying to write to a trend, which you also, and it's also impossible to do. And I, I remember this from my days as a YA novelist, because at that moment, Twilight had gotten really, really big. It was like 2009 and Twilight was huge. And everyone was like, we need to find the next Twilight. And everyone was trying to figure out what is going to be the next thing. And people were like, it's going to be, it's going to be fucking mermaids it's going to be werewolves (laughs) it's going to be like elves you know it's going to be some kind of supernatural like a romance between a human being and some kind of supernatural creature centaurs maybe um there was a dan savage call once to that effect probably around this time um and then it turned out to be dystopia and everybody who'd been writing like their you know erotic centaur teen fiction had to go and you know cry on a pile of unpublished pages um while the hunger games ascended and then everyone was like okay you know what's gonna be the next dystopia and like and and they're always chasing things it's impossible to know what's going to blow up um i think that i think the next thing that happened after that actually was 50 shades of gray instead of like which is a different kind of dystopia but um, i thought you were gonna yeah i mean i never actually read that were there centaurs involved i let's just say yes that sounds more interesting than i think what the actual books are about there is definitely a riding crop involved um okay so. <laughs> close enough close enough but basically what I'm saying is, you know, as, as impossible as it is to um, kind of in a, in a positive sense, in a proactive sense, you know, write to a trend and predict what's going to be of interest to like and, and what's going to be zeitgeisty 18 months from today, uh, it's also impossible to predict what's going to be problematic. There's just no knowing yeah, yeah. I mean, this is so that's the other aspect of this that I'm kind of obsessed with is this idea of problematic artists, problematic art, as if because, like, to me, this implies a category of non problematic people and non problematic works that just does not exist, could not conceptually exist. People are, you know, flawed, not just artists, all people. It's not, I'm not even talking about like art monsters, I'm talking about just like human beings. And They're just like, this was what, I mean, not to bring everything back to Nanette, but sometimes one must. Um, And I just remember like the thing that when, um, when I watched that Hannah Gadsby Nanette special on Netflix, lo these many years ago, I just remember thinking like all of this discussion of like the cis straight white men or whatever was the refrain in the comedy, so-called comedy special it just seemed to be positing this existence of this purer type of person who couldn't be problematic. And that just seemed nuts. And it still seems nuts. And But that seems to be like, I feel like shifting the kind of um, frame of this debate, like, I don't mean the, the conversation we're having, but I just mean in general, like this cultural discussion of problematic art or problematic artists, like that needs to change. Like there's, ah, everybody's problematic. There's maybe an ethical, specific ethical question when somebody is like, 
they wrote a nice poem, but they also hacked all their neighbors to bits. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying like in terms of is somebody, you know, flawed? It's like, yes, assume that they're flawed. Like, why not just have that be where you what you start from assuming? And then maybe this whole thing of like, I found that somebody did a problematic tweet, you know, in 2012. It's like, ah, who cares? Yeah, but the the reason like I just had this, it felt like I had this like visceral reaction in my body when I saw her pulling her book. It's like my whole body was like, no, like I I just felt so strongly because I thought this sets such a bad precedent. Even if you're the least problematic novelist, even if you've done everything right, you've said all the right things and you've hired all the sensitivity readers. It's like if you don't have her, her wealth, her power, her influence, her clout, and the social media pylon comes for you, um, who's going to stand behind you? We, we have to say, no, we can't let this become the precedent where we're responding to social media. Pressure. It could have happened to me the summer of 2020. People could have said, you know what? Now's not the time for Lee Stein to publish a book where she writes in the point of view of a black character. Like Lee Stein should really think and do better and pull this book. And she can publish it in the future when it's you know a less politically charged time. She could have this book come out in the future. That would have been, I can see that happening. Well, sure. I mean, I think the precedent point is like everything. I mean, that's, yeah. Cause like, I mean, there's just something about the way that in um, Elizabeth Gilbert's video, she's like, I'm working on other things too. Like, it's just clearly, it's nothing to her, at least as she portrays it. Like there's no real sacrifice happening. She's somebody who can get published regardless. She will have readers waiting to read her. Um, and yeah, that just, um, that is frustrating. Because, like, anybody else just is not even going to, like, their work is not going to ever make it to any readers because they can be canceled before they've even begun. So I want to I run something by you guys. What do we think about the idea, because this was the, the main defense of Gilbert doing what she did, that this was an incredible act of empathy? Yeah, I find it vomit worthy, but I thought that maybe, you know, somebody might have something slightly more uh, eloquent to say about it than that. The thing I keep thinking about is kind of my, my, always my topic of obsession is, is the mixed messages women receive. So women are told, you know, to make people like them and to be a good girl and be nice. And then there's the backlash to that. That's like, stop trying to please everyone. Like you have pleasing syndrome, you know, be brave, be courageous. And then it's like, well, not so courageous that you don't have empathy. And it's like, well, where, what is the behavior? Again, we're trying to control women's behavior by telling them how and how they should think and what they should do constantly. There's another, okay, can I, can I do a yes and that I think is going to be really um, pertinent? Ooh, do it. Okay. So pay writers, make sure writers get paid for their work, but also any writing that anybody objects to for any reason, that's not really work. That's something that you can just opt out of publishing, you know, nobly say you're not going to write it. You're not going to take that money. Oh, the person who owns that publication doesn't, is a, is a mean billionaire. Okay. Forget it. Nope. Nope. Boycotting that. I will only write for the places that are really, really noble, but also they have to pay you know what I mean? Does, does this, am I yeah. going somewhere with this? Okay. Because that seems like another, that seems like another part of this, this idea that writing somehow is a type of work that is actually like a political statement that you can always opt out of. You can always not publish that book at that time. You can always not write for that publication because the person who owns it isn't very nice, which I mean, what are you going to do? Like this? Yeah. It's this idea that it's an act of like immense female empowerment to, for a woman to sacrifice her career or her financial stability on the altar of whatever cause because you know because look at the empathy like 
okay, can we think of a time when a man has been asked to do this? Does it ever happen? Mm, a novelist? Um, well, didn't you find, wasn't there that one where a, a black writer wrote about... Oh, Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo. Kosovo. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so, wait. Okay. I'm curious now. Do you guys pronounce his name Kosoko or Kosoko? Because... I thought it was about Kosovo, like the place. Yeah, it was It was by Kosoko Jackson and it took place in Kosovo. Okay, that is yes. not I... unconfusing. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was a man. That was a kind of a particular situation. It was a gay man. So I think that, you know, so so basically he's an honorary woman. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I think that that probably has something to do with it. The other thing, too, was that he had um, – he was one of these writers who had put all of his eggs in the, like, diversity, equity, inclusion, and empathy basket. So when people came for him, like, in order to maintain any kind of standing whatsoever in the community of which he was a part, he basically had to cave. Well, the empathy aspect, though, can we just, like, dwell on that for a minute? Because it is extremely emotional because it's, like, her her um, video is very much like she's saying about the, the pain people are feeling. She feels their pain. And that seems to be a lot of it, like, this performance of emotion. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I do have, I mean, even though it was famously Bill Clinton who said, I feel your pain, that does seem like more of a woman thing, the feeling of pain in that way, performative feeling of pain. Yeah, I think there's an there's an expectation, there's an expectation that women can be moved to change their ideas or change their minds through an emotional campaign whereas the stereotype is like with men you need reason and argument, but women can be persuaded through emotions. I can be only persuaded by somebody wearing extremely impressive sort of dominating glasses frames. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I was thinking about this. So we, we have not yet discussed the glasses frames in the video. And apparently, um, just on Elizabeth Gilbert's Instagram, generally, uh, she seems to have put her successes in the literary sphere um, towards a lot of very statement glasses frames. She put her money where her eyes are. She did. I mean, it makes you look like somebody who reads like, so I mean, I don't wear glasses. So I, I have never read a book. Um, that's how I don't know if I need them or not. But um, I think it's I think it's like connected to like middle aged women becoming invisible that this is a way to really draw attention to your face by wearing these huge huge statement glasses. But but so here's another thing um, about this, which is I'm talking about this, and then I'm feeling like, shouldn't we really be talking about her ideas and not her gigantic, almost sort of like costume type glasses frames? But then I'm thinking about how there's this controversy about Jordan Peterson having been criticized for dressing badly by that guy. Oh, yeah, the menswear guy. Yeah. Dye workwear. Dye workwear wants um, Jordan Peterson not to dress so badly. And then this led to a lot of, um, my timeline is split. Like people are obsessed with this between like what a sort of silly and I quote somebody I follow, pedantic sort of approach to life versus that was a horrible outfit Jordan Peterson was wearing. But the point of this rather digressive digression is that Jordan Peterson is wearing in this picture what looks to me like a pretty normal outfit, but with this extremely shiny gold tie and I'm wondering, is that like the men, the man's equivalent of um, the statement glasses? You know, he's gotten to a certain age, you know, he's got, got to accessorize. 
I don't think it's neckties. I think that when you, you're a man of a certain age and you want to call attention to yourself and you feel invisible, you put on like a giant cod piece. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you should, but, but, but do they? Do they do this? Henry VIII did. But, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's a sample size of one. <laughs> I'm extremely glad that we've reached this point because it always does happen. Okay, but no, really quick. I want to actually, I want to talk about the glasses a little bit because I I mentioned them in my piece. Um, I said they were comically oversized and I came in for an enormous amount of criticism. I was, I was committing girl on girl crime by even mentioning the fact that she was wearing these. Like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler against Taylor Swift. Yes, what? exactly. Yeah, okay. There's a special place in hell for me. Um, but honestly, I mean... <laughs> glasses are very big yes you buy this not just giant glasses but giant orange glasses and you do this what so nobody will look at or talk about them no i'm sorry i'm giving her exactly what she wants are you saying that she's asking for it yes look look at what she was wearing um but i i think it's unfortunate yeah that you know it it made the entire thing aesthetically of a kind with i think this sort of cringeworthy like this display that um, is a sort of a broader phenomenon where you have women of a certain age, like middle-aged white ladies, basically, which I am one, so I can talk about them. We, we don't know anything about that such an experience. So, <laughs> so tell us about your lived experience that we don't, we, we don't know of. Neither of you guys are 40 yet. Boy, it's coming. It's coming for you. Um, but, you know, this thing of like middle-aged white ladies kind of prostrating themselves at the feet of this very particular like very right now youth culture and basically saying please don't eat me um that's what this video felt like to me in many ways and i think that that's one of the reasons why it was not received also very well you call it a hostage video they say it looks like a hostage video and i think that's an excellent excellent point well the lighting is the the angle is more like your boomer parents are uh, are FaceTiming you from an iPad that they have sitting on their coffee table. So it's like aimed upward. But what it's aimed upward at is like, this is somebody known for going to scenic places. She does not look like she's in a scenic place in this video, right? Like this, there's no backdrop of something interesting. It looks like she's in some sort of unglamorous little room. See, I don't know if I see it as, cr- as cringe as you see it, because to me, it seems like very savvy and is the aesthetic of the creator economy. Like TikTok culture is impacting the internet that we live on. And so to me, it's done very in the style of TikTok culture. So I actually see her as savvier than most writers her age that she was able to do this on camera. Even though I don't disagree with what she did, um, I think it shows that she speaks the language of the current internet. It's very hard for me to tell like where, this is just, I mean, in general, like what is the moment, what is passe? Because like, yeah, I mean, I also saw it as Kat did, where it just seemed very cringe and very much like she thinks she's living in 2020, but she's not. And, you know, we're living in the moment when the New York Times is panning, you know, the Hannah Gadsby Pablo Maddox show at the Brooklyn Museum, right? Like, Right, in terms of its content. Yes, yes, I agree with you. Oh, actually, Lee, I have a question. This is, yes, okay, so she nailed the TikTok aesthetic, and she did nail the kind of confessional, um, like, real close in kind of ASMR. Right, instead of doing, like, a written statement that she posts a screenshot of to Instagram. Okay, here's my question. That's the aesthetic, but does her audience appreciate that? Ooh, well, who is her audience? 
Does her audience appreciate her being on camera like that? Yeah, I mean, like, this obviously, had this been a TikTok video, but it wasn't, right? It was Instagram and then cross-posted to Twitter. But this is what people want. People want to see people on camera. Because I have such a hard time convincing women of that age to get on camera. And I'm like, this is what people want to watch. The, the, the time for stayed posed photographs is over. So this is the kind of engaging content that people do want to see on the internet. Because she must have to be getting new readers. Like the really, really famous book she wrote came out in 2006, which to me sounds not like the very long ago, 2006. But I guess, you know, it is actually quite a long time ago. So if she needs to get new readers on board, yeah, she probably would need the people who watch. I don't think she needs new readers, but I think it's this kind of style of straight to camera talking that persuades your audience that you're quote unquote, just like them. It's like, it's what builds engagement and community. Cause you're like, I know Liz, it's like you're FaceTiming with her. Yes, it was. It was exactly like you were FaceTiming yes. with her. And that's the style. And I, kept talk- I kept talking and she didn't reply. And I was like, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Is this working? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I don't, I, I fear for the fate of literature, not to be pompous, but I do. I fear for it because if everybody, like, why, why write if this is what's coming? You know, like, the, I just keep coming back to like, Lee, what you said about the precedent, like, what does this even mean? Like, how does this change? Does this whole incident change how you would advise, you know, aspiring novelists? Well, what I want to advise people to do is stand up when stand up when they believe in something strongly. Like I had so many people DM me or tell me in person that they were afraid to say they disagreed with Elizabeth Gilbert's decision until they saw me saying something publicly and then they could latch on to me and say, "Oh, I agree with you, Lee." But like I had to go first for them to feel brave enough to say I disagree with what Liz did too. And that to me is really scary because I think if you want to be a professional writer but you're scared of having opinions in public, you're never going to make it. I mean, look at Kat Rosenfield. <laughs> it's just like Kat's my Kat's my brave icon. I look to Kat to be braver than I already am. It's like um, you have to be willing to stand up when it's something you believe in. You don't have to share every opinion you have, but you have to be willing to share some opinions in public. Otherwise, why do you want to be a professional writer? Well, that's a, that's what I'm wondering though. If it's if you're a writer of fiction, do you have to share opinions in public? Like it so happens that both of you do both of those things. But are there novelists who are just like, you know what? News cycle, commentary, not not my bag. Sure, but I think there are moments where you're going to have to say something or you're going to have to write a novel that's about something. Even if, you, even if your novel is saying the thing that you might not tweet, but there's a message in your novel, you have to stand for something. I mean, the thing is, I was just thinking about what happened to Sandra Newman when she wrote The Men. I don't think that she was thinking of this in political terms at all. I think that she was doing, I mean, she was doing maybe a, a feminist novel in certain ways. Um, but mostly she was, you know, riffing on a very kind of old and very interesting, like, spec fiction trope, which is what if, you know, all the people of whatever gender, and it's usually men, disappeared. And, you know, I don't think that she anticipated when she was writing this that it was going to become, like, a political football in the transgender culture war. Um, And so that's the other thing about this. It's not just that you have to be able to to kind of meet a moment like that and stand up for yourself. It's that there's no knowing what is going, like what 
aspect of your novel that you don't even predict at the time is going to end up like sparking some kind of giant brouhaha. And it's the the entire thing is so um I know it's like Calvin Ball. Like I mean, we talk about well, would you would you change the way you write now? Why bother? The rules are going to have changed in eighteen months or two years or whatever. Well, that's it is. why I'm wondering whether the way to approach this strategically, almost, and this is how I feel, not as a novelist, just as a writer of other types of things, is like better to just not have your own reputation be I am the good person to begin with, because that's only going to fail, and just be like outspoken say whatever it is you're not like absolutely whatever pops into your head but you know if you have views on things say them because that way is I think that's almost the only way to kind of get ahead of it if that makes sense the only problem is sometimes you do that and then people get so used to you being really fun and outspoken on Twitter and then your novel's not that oh no <laughs> oh no but that's that's offensive though that's another episode yes. of Feminine Chaos. It certainly is. Um, before but... we wrap up, I did want to share a positive story. Please oh. do. No, get out of here with that shit. <laughs> <laughs> so my original tweet was saying, like, I don't see how this decision from Elizabeth Gilbert makes any material difference to Ukrainians. And I wanted to just share the example of the poet Ilya Kaminsky, who's one of our great living American poets. He's an award-winning poet. He was a, a Jew who was born in Odessa when it was part of the former Soviet Union. He came here as a refugee to the United States. Um, his most prominent book is called Deaf Republic. And he recently taught a poetry class on Zoom and raised all the money to go to refugees and poets and journalists in Odessa. So the day before Elizabeth Gilbert pulled her own book, he said on Twitter that he had raised $6,779 to distribute. And then he posted photos from this monastery where nuns are caring for 300 cats that have been left behind in Odessa and that they have helped more than 1,000 people at this monastery. And to me, this is just a writer who's actually making a difference. Um, in Ukraine, he went there in person um, himself. And I just think like, this is just such an example of something Elizabeth Gilbert could have done, but did not do. Well, it's hard to do it when you're trapped in a room like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard when you're a hostage. I have to give her that. Yes. Yeah, um, that seems a little more um, impactful than than what she did. But you know, it does. I've been trying to think about a good eat, pray, love joke, something about how you can eat the cats and pray in the monastery <laughs> and love. Um, maybe you would love the cats instead of eating them, but I got nothing. What I will say that I don't know what it is, like something in the air has just like, uh, there's been talk of Russia and now I just have this great urge to be a tourist in Russia and, and in Ukraine and to be in a war zone, but like relaxing, eating, praying and loving. Because that sounds like a, that's just what people are that suggestible. I think we should do a live show in Moscow. I think that that's next feminine case. Live stream from inside a bathtub full of borscht. No, no. And one of us needs to crawl into one of us and then another into the other one of us like the. Yeah, anyway. That's a horror movie called The Human Centipede, and I want no part of it. <laughs> I was going, I was going for Russian Russian dolls, but sure, that too. <laughs> <laughs> no, Phoebe, it doesn't work with people. <laughs> oh, shucks. Somehow they All do right. no, but they do that joke on like every BBC Newshour comedy program, and somehow when I try to do it, it sounds like disgusting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can uh, you can work on it for next time. Yeah. All right. All right. Any anything else to eat, pray, or love about before we 
call it a day? Um, well, if you're thinking, my advice to everybody is if you're thinking about writing anything, be it a novel, a tweet, or an article, just um, don't because you're a terrible person. <laughs> and any money you might have earned from anything, not the tweets perhaps, but anything else, uh, you should donate it to Elizabeth Gilbert for her empathy. Because she's so empathetic. <laughs> and so she can buy more glasses. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been Feminine Chaos. It certainly has. Um, if you liked this, you might want to consider subscribing. Yes. Join us on Substack Chaos. at femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 a month, you can gain access to, uh, well, you get early access to fun conversations like this one. You also get premium episodes that are just for our paying subscribers and also open threads, comment threads, yada, yada, whole community. We love it. You'll love it. Join us there. I think that's it. I think yep. so too. Thank All you, right. Lee. I, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.